If you have a Bible, you can uh, take a little bit of time finding the book of Micah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, chapter 5. We'll read a verse there in a little bit. Um, So we've been doing this series for quite a while about the problem of evil, and I've got um, a few more things I want to say about this. Greg will be here next week, and then the following week I'm going to start talking about time, and I'm going to try to prove to you that the future doesn't exist yet, and that Dr. Brown from Back to the Future was right uh, at the end of episode three. But anyway, that'll be in two weeks. But today, I want to deal more with uh, um, the issue of free will and how that relates to providence or God's influence on history. Last week, I tried to explain that I believe in what's called libertarian free will. And this just means that I believe that even though there's lots of forces that influence us, how many of you acknowledge that? I mean, I have lots of things that influence me. At the end of the day, the final explanation for my decisions rests in my own heart. And I can't really blame external forces for what I do because at the end of the day, I make those decisions. And we contrasted that with determinism. Determinism teaches that uh, these factors are so influencing me that I don't have control over my own decisions and I'm being exhaustively pre-programmed either by God or by my DNA or by the neurochemicals in my brain or whatever. Um, And then in between there, there was a thing called compatibilism. And compatibilism is the idea that uh, maybe you have free will, but... At the end of the day, God is working behind the scenes to control what you want, and He is controlling you that way. And to me, compatibilism and determinism basically are the same thing. They are different categories, but but to me, uh, compatibilism, I I don't think free will is compatible with determinism, personally. And so I argued that uh, God doesn't override people's free will. And if you want to, you can go back and watch that on YouTube. Today, I'm going to defend that position against a particular question. There are um, uh, lots of possible objections to this question, but one of them is if God doesn't unilaterally override people's free will, how is it that He can still accomplish His divine purposes? It's a good question, right? Because we believe that God intervenes in human history. How many of you believe that God intervenes in human, yeah. in human history? Sure. And so what I'm contending is that He does so without violating people's will. He does it by in cooperation with the free wills of agents, both human and angels and so forth. But the question is, if God cannot unilaterally... Now, do you understand what unilaterally means? Like, not, like without somebody's cooperation. So just flicking a switch in their brain. If God doesn't just flick switches in our brains and override our wills, how does He ensure His divine plan is accomplished? Or you could say, how can God speak so confidently about various future outcomes if He isn't exhaustively controlling them? Good question, right? For example, in Micah 5, verse 2, God says this, But you, Bethlehem, 
Though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall uh, he shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Well, that was probably a pretty hard scripture to understand when it was written, but it's pretty clear that's talking about Jesus. That Jesus is king and that his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Jesus shows up throughout the Bible throughout human history. Um, but the question is, how can God know and how can God say with such confidence that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem if, he, if He's not going to override somebody's will to make it happen? Does that question make sense? Uh -huh. Similarly, uh, Jesus predicted in Mark 13, verse 2, that the temple in Jerusalem would fall and that one stone wouldn't be left upon another. And then finally in Habakkuk, let's read this one. Uh, Habakkuk, it's just a couple books over, 1 and verse 6. God says, For lo, I will raise up the Chaldeans, that was the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess their dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful, and their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. What Habakkuk here is saying is that, so this is way back in history, and the nation of Israel has gone into idolatry. They're worshiping gods other than, than Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, I try not to say Jehovah anymore because... It's technically not a real word for God, but anyway, uh, don't get off on that. So, so fo focus, focus. Um, Judah has gone into idolatry, and uh, God says, I'm going to bring Babylon to judge you. That's what it says, right? It says, I'm going to raise up Babylon, and they're going to come in and and destroy you. That sure sounds like God is sovereignly controlling these nations to bring about His plan. And from this scripture, people get kind of this idea that, yeah, God might not be controlling like Pastor Max or somebody, because the reality is I don't really have a lot of influence on the overall course of history. Right? Because we're, but, but God certainly, He must be controlling world leaders, He must be controlling nations or something like that in order to uh, bring about His sovereign plan. And in my opinion, you can't, that's an inconsistent argument because world leaders are still people. If God can't sovereignly override your will, it, it's nonsensical that He can sovereignly override some other person's will. So this isn't, this isn't a thing where you can have your cake and eat it too. People either have free will or they don't, in my opinion. So how's God able to do that? How can God predict that these things will happen? How can God bring about His sovereign plan without violating people's will? The first thing I would say as a preliminary response to that question is that assuming that God has to rig the outcome in advance diminishes His glory. Here's why. I like watching my kids play with toys. Anybody ever watch your kids play with toys? And there's always bad guy toys and good guy toys. And they're always fighting each other. Anybody ever seen this? But do you know the good guys always win? 
Now, why do the good guys always win? Because my kids exercise unilateral control over all of the players. Everybody with me? They can make the bad guys make a mistake. They can make the good guys suddenly have superpowers and, and kill everybody. Right? When I watch my kids play with, my, with their toys, it's fun, but I'm never impressed with the outcome. I'm not like, I'm not like wow, I really thought the, I really thought the, the good guys were going to lose this time. But they really pulled it out. Right? I'm not, I'm not impressed because they're, they're controlling all the pieces. It's not impressive. It's fun. But that doesn't bring glory. In my opinion, if God is controlling sovereignly all of the players, that greatly diminishes His glory because He's just like a kid playing with toys. You know what brings God glory is if you believe, as I do, that people have free will and that God only is able to influence some of the pieces and yet He's still able to bring about victory. It's very much like this. I, uh, I thought I invented this analogy. I, I didn't. I read that. I didn't actually think that. But I am the first person I, I heard make this analogy. <laughs> Because I felt, I, as I was proud of it, because I, I thought it up when I was like 14 or something, but, but I read a book recently that traced the origins of the argument, and I'm like, oh, people have been smarter than me for a long time. But <laughs> Anyway, uh, the game of chess has been around for a long time. Yeah. Chess is the ultimate skill game. Yeah. There's very little to no luck involved in chess. I understand how to play, and I could play a little bit, but if I were to sit down with a grandmaster chess player... The outcome of the game would be predetermined. Yeah. <laughs> before we ever play. Before we ever move a piece. You ever played somebody that's really good at chess? I mean, and they can see so many moves in advance. And it's like, I'm going to try, but I know in advance I'm going to lose. Does that mean the fact that I'm going to lose, the fact that it's predetermined, does that mean I can't control my pieces? No, I have total free range <laughs> over my pieces. I can move them wherever I want. I can cause some damage. I can get some temporary victory. But at the end of the day, if you're playing a grandmaster chess player, everything you do just plays into their hands. Well, that's like God. God's a grandmaster chess player. He does not need to exert unilateral control over people to win. He's just smarter than us. By a lot. Determinists will often say that the idea of libertarian free will diminishes God's glory. And uh, R.C. Sproul, now, listen, can we disagree with people's theology without hating them? Yep. Of course we can. So I, don't have, I love R.C. Sproul. He loves Jesus. But he's a, he's a leading Christian determinist. Yep. And what he believes is this. He says this, 
If there's any part of creation outside of God's sovereignty, meaning control, God is not God. To me, that's a, that's a wild statement. He's saying if God doesn't control every single molecule exhaustively, then God isn't God. And the reason they believe that is for determinists, the, the definition of power is control. If you're all-powerful, you must be all-controlling. That's how they think about it. But I believe that the Bible teaches that real power is an entirely different kind of power. It's the power Jesus revealed on the cross. It's the power to empower others and give them space to be themselves. Even if that means murdering God. Look at Proverbs 16, 32. Proverbs 16, 32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules his spirit is better than he that takes the city. A person who can control themselves, in God's opinion, is more impressive than a person who can control an entire city. God's not impressed by dictators. He's not impressed by people that exert exhaustive control over others. For him, real power is about controlling yourself and letting those around you be themselves. Well, how many of you know that's actually a lot harder? Can we just say that from real life? I mean... How many of you have been married or been had kids or, you know, had a relationship? If I just control everybody around me and make everybody do what I want, it's, it's, there's no fear, there's no challenge for me. It's, it's, uh, and, and frankly, it's not very impressive. We don't like people like that. Well, do we think God lives up to his own standards, or do we think he has different standards for people? I think he lives up to his own standards. I think that God's definition of power is controlling himself, so I think God controls himself. C.S. Lewis said that the greatest definition or the greatest demonstration of God's omnipotence is found in the fact that he could create people that resist Him. I think that's true. Again, if I watch my kids play with their toys, I'm not impressed with their ability to exhaustively control them. But I'm crazy impressed at how God is able to bring about certain things in history without exhaustively controlling people. Do you know how difficult it was to get Jesus born of a virgin in Bethlehem in just the right year? He predicted the year. And he did all that without violating people's will. He did it just by controlling his own pieces. The pieces represent people that are yielded to him. All right, that's a preliminary argument. But how can God 
Here's the question. How can God speak with such assurance about future outcomes? Here's four points real quickly. Number one, because God has total faith in His ability to make whatever personal sacrifice is necessary to bring about the desired outcome. Isaiah 59, verse 16 says, God looked around and He saw that there was no man and He wondered. He was stunned. He was shocked. Some translations say that there was no intercessor. And therefore, His own arm brought salvation and His righteousness, it sustained Him. God looked around at one point and He's thinking, i got to have somebody flow th- to flow through. i got, I got to try to save people. How am I going to do it? And, and there wasn't anybody helping Him. So what did He do? He said, I'm going to bring salvation. And He came down here as a human named Jesus. And then Jesus made the sacrifice to save us. How can, just play this out in a small microcosm, how can God ensure that He can be born in Bethlehem at the right time? Because God is, He knows His own character and He knows He's so humble that even if it requires being born in a manger in the middle of a stable at a time when He's sure to be persecuted, when He almost almost might die, Even if it means that, God's so humble, He'll make the personal sacrifice. He's the king of the universe. He doesn't deserve to be born in a stable in the middle of nowhere. But He doesn't care about any of that. He'll make whatever sacrifice is necessary. He knows Himself. He has confidence in Himself. He has His confidence in Himself to make necessary sacrifices. Number two, we already talked about this, but God's wisdom and His glory greatly exceed our own. Go back a couple chapters. Isaiah 55, verse 8 says, For as my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and your thoughts, excuse me, my thoughts are higher than your own thoughts. God can speak confidently about future outcomes because he's smarter than us and he can see so many moves ahead. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, it says that the powers of this world would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they'd known what was happening. In other words, Jesus tricked the devil. Do you know that in chess, sometimes you can offer up a piece and it looks so tempting to that opposing player that they'll take it. And that's exactly what you want. That's what God did. He offered up His queen, Jesus. The devil couldn't resist. And in doing so, he he lost big time. But God didn't force the devil to kill Jesus. He didn't force anybody to kill Jesus. He didn't force Judas to betray Jesus. He doesn't need to do any of that. Additionally, Romans 2.4 says that the goodness of God will lead people to repentance. God doesn't need to exhaustively control people because He knows how good He is. If you know how good God is... You'll quit serving the devil. 
I really believe that the only thing that keeps people from serving God is that they, we, we believe lies about Him. We've misunderstood His nature and His character. And if you were perfectly good, you would have confidence that if people got to know you, that they'd want to serve you and be with you. He doesn't have to force anybody. He knows who He is. Thirdly, this is the trickiest one. God is able to speak confidently about future outcomes because even if people use their freedom to choose rebellion, He's capable of weaving that rebellion into His plan. Okay, what does that mean? Let's look at Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, this is very often used by determinists to try to show that God is just controlling everybody. But if you actually look at it, as I'll show you in a second, it teaches the polar opposite. Is everybody all right? It's really quiet in here. Hopefully this makes sense. Let's read this. This is the story of the uh, potter. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my voice. And then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he was, he was making something on the wheel. I used to do this in college. It's awesome. Anybody ever made something on a potter's wheel? I mean, the thing spins, and you get a, hold it with your hands, and you push your thumbs in there. and It's really cool. But anyway, he went down and he looked at this, and it says, and the vessel that he made was marred in the hand of the potter. I've had that happen to me. The, <laughs> the thing messed up. So he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good unto the potter to make it. So what Jeremiah sees is something like this. This guy is like he's trying to make a bowl. But then it gets too flattened out, so he thinks, well, I'll just make a plate. Change the purpose. So the vessel had one purpose, but then it got messed up, so he changed and made it a different purpose. That's what he sees. Okay? Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do to you as this potter? Behold, the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now the trouble is that very often people just stop right there and he'll say things like, well, see, God, God, we're the clay. And God is just, you know, he's beating you, you know, and put, making you whatever he wants. And he's, he's going to, you know, manipulate you like clay and get you into whatever shape, you know, that he wants. Okay. Before we go any further, one thing we have to understand is that in our, our kind of Western way of thinking about, about the Scripture, we are way, 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 way over-literal when it comes to parables. The way that Jewish people thought about this kind of stuff is, is that it's there to teach one point. One. Everybody say one. One point. Metaphors inevitably break down as you try to extend the metaphor over multiple points. All metaphors, by nature, are oversimplifications 
that break down as you try to extend them. When you take a metaphor and you extend it beyond the point that it expressly makes, you get into error. And the Scripture almost always explains the metaphor. And the crazy part is people go way beyond the warrant of the explanation. It's like, what does this potter thing mean? Well, I have, to, I have to figure it out. I have to think about the metaphor. No, quit thinking about the metaphor and just read what it says. Then go back and explain, understand the metaphor. So, what's it say? Let's just read the next part. What, is this, what does this mean? It means this, verse 7. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do to them. Okay, what does that statement mean? It says, God might say, now this is in the Old Testament, and things, this, God's not doing this anymore, but this is what was going on back then. And God, sometimes in the Old Testament, made pronouncements about nations. How many of you have noticed this, reading the Bible? Like he'd say, to, he'd say he said this to Nineveh, I'm going to destroy you. Did he say to Nineveh, I'm going to destroy you? Okay, but what could happen? They could repent. And if they repent, what will God do? He'll repent and he won't destroy them. Did that happen to Nineveh? Yeah, it's exactly what happened to Nineveh. Everybody with me? So, what he's saying is, I might speak and I might say to a nation, here's your purpose. I'm going to destroy you. But, just like that vessel on the potter's wheel, if something changes in you, I can change your purpose. And now I'm not going to destroy you. Now I'm going to bless you. This passage teaches free will. It teaches the exact opposite of how it's used. Read the next part. He says the reverse. Similarly, at what instant I shall speak concerning the nation and concerning that kingdom to build up and to plant it, if it does evil and does not obey my voice, then I will repent of the good that I, that I thought would benefit them. And then, so he says the other way works too. If I say I'm going to bless you, but then, but then you go into rebellion, then I can change my purpose and now I'm going to curse you. Now, again, this is in the Old Testament. But the, but the whole point of this is that what God is trying to say here is whatever people decide to do, I can still win. I can still win. I can still get the outcome that I want. So, um, uh, Joseph, Joseph's brothers decide they're going to be evil and hate Joseph. Does God make them do that? No. They don't have to hate Joseph and be evil. But God says, okay, if you're going to hate Joseph and be evil and throw him in the pit, guess what? I can use that to get Joseph to Egypt. Because i got to get Joseph over there so he can be second in command of that place and save my people. It's just like chess. It's like in chess... If, if, I'm, if I'm playing a grandmaster, you know, if I know I'm playing somebody that's way beyond me in skill level, what I'm going to do is just act crazy. And I'm just going to try to start taking pieces and sacrificing stuff because, because I don't have a lot of hope. 
Do you know the Bible says the devil's like that? He knows his time is short. So he's doing a bunch of craziness. And, and so, so he can get some temporary victories. He can take some pieces. He can make people do some crazy... You know, people, people do crazy stuff. Have you noticed that? Have you ever done anything crazy? Sure you have. So, but, but God says... God says, look, that crazy thing you did, I'll just, I'll just use it to further my plan. I'll just, I'll, it's now part of the plan. It wasn't part of the plan, but now it is part of the plan. That's what he said about, about Joseph. Joseph says to his brothers, you know, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. It doesn't mean God was controlling it. It means, it means God reshaped the purpose. God can edit the purpose because He's God. Hallelujah. That's all that means. None of that suggests that God unilaterally determines people's destinies. It just suggests that God is awesome and adapting to whatever crazy thing humans decide next. Well, that's encouraging to me because I've done some crazy things, but... And it wasn't part, you know that Bathsheba, Bathsheba, God, did God, you know, people are so crazy. I mean, how can you think that God wanted David to go and, and have adultery with Bathsheba? God didn't want that. But, but David did it. God's like, all right, well, <laughs> this wasn't the plan. But now it is the plan. And then he blessed Solomon. Solomon was a great king. All right. Well, I mean, until he went crazy too. But anyway. <laughs> but here's the thing. I mean, God had a purpose for the nation of Israel. Do you know that? God wanted, to, God wanted to bless all nations through Israel. But, well, they didn't do a very good job about that. So what did God do? God used that to bring salvation to everybody else. That's actually what Romans 9 talks about in 9 through 11. Um, I have Romans 9 is a major determinist passage. I'm not going to go back over it. If you have questions about Romans 9, on our website, I have a whole teaching about Romans, and I have two whole messages about it, and I still mostly agree with everything that I said. So I see a, some of it a little different, but it's still a good teaching. Okay, um, and then lastly, God is able to speak constant, uh, confidently because even if people are in rebellion, the people who put faith in him will provide enough cooperation to see his plans come to pass. You know, Herod was not, was not down for Jesus being born. Anybody with me? I mean, he tried to kill Jesus. But it didn't matter because Mary was all in. God only really needs one person whose heart's fully his. Jesus gives us a great example of what it's like for one person to have be fully yielded to God. He changed the whole world. God only needs a few people like that. I'd like to be one of them. All right. I was going to make some of these. I'll try to do these points really quickly. Um, 
God's agreement with the Israelite nation seems to have opened a door for him to exert powerful influence on other nations. So Abraham, God said to Abraham, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you, right? I think that creates the context wherein God is able to uh, exert strong influence on nations like Babylon because of that covenant that, that uh, he entered with, with the nation of Israel. Um, I don't have time to fully explain that, so I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about it some other time. Look at this verse. This is an interesting verse, Hebrews eleven seven. I think that God, it seems to me that God, even God's judgment is in some way predicated on people's agreements with Him. Look at Hebrews eleven seven. It says, By faith Noah being warned of the things as not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. That's a really interesting statement. <laughs> um, it appears, I wouldn't make a lot out of this, but I've, I, I've thought for a while that because I just believe God has to work through people. And so I, I think that in some measure, some of these things like the flood, they were, they were in some measure predicated on God getting people to agree with Him. And in this sense, it was, it was Noah. So I wouldn't make a law out of that, and I'm not trying to develop a huge theology about that, but I just, I think that explains further. So in conclusion, if, you, if you're wanting to be baptized, you can go ahead and get changed I'm going to wrap it up here real quickly. In conclusion, it's clear to me that God has many avenues open to Him to ensure His overall will comes to pass without overriding anybody's free will. I just don't think He needs to do it. God could have created a world where He controlled everybody. God can do anything. He could have created a world where everybody was just like a toy and he was playing with everybody. But I don't believe he's that kind of God. It's not his character. It's a greatly diminished view of God, in my opinion. Now, if you hold that view, I love you. I'm not mad at you. I'm just telling you what I think. It's difficult, therefore, because of this, to ascertain all of the various factors that bring about any given situation. So why did X happen? Well, I mean, it's complicated <laughs> because we're talking about the free will decisions of millions of people that play into each individual moment. I really believe that. I mean, why, you know, why are you here in this church right now? Well, I mean, you made a decision to come here, but there's a huge number of influences and things that, that all these factors, all these free will decisions. I mean, I had to decide to come here and plant this church. Well, why did I do that? Well, I don't know. I was crazy, but no. No, no. But why did I do that? Because, because of the influence of God, primarily, but then, you know, other people that I've known, and there's just all these different situations. So, it's impossible, I think, to exhaustively know why any one thing happens. That's, why I've, that's what I've argued from the book of Job. But 
God is glorified in that He's not exhaustively controlling all these factors, and He's still able to win out in the end. God only has control over a few number of the chess pieces, but luckily for you and me, that's all He needs. Because He's a lot better at it than you and me. Okay. Um, I'm going to pray for everybody. If my prayer team could come up here. Skylar, if you can come play or something, it would be great. And, um, if you need personal prayer in just a second. Man, last week was a great service, just to give you testimony. We saw a couple people healed of shoulder problems. If you have that problem, we'd love to pray for you or some other problem. So that was really good. And then the Chiefs got the two seed. Yeah. And then J.J. Abrams fixed Star Wars. So, I mean, we were, it was a really blessed <laughs> weekend. Let's all stand up. I'm going to pray for everybody. I'll pray for the sound, too. If you need personal prayer, you can come down in just a second. Father, I just love you. I thank you that we get to make the free will decision to love you. That we don't have to do it. And so when we do it, it means something. So, Lord, we just release your glory and your power and your love today. Let healings happen. Let breakthroughs happen. Let people come to know you more and more. Let blinders be lifted off and let us see you exactly the way that you really are. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.